I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com forward slash apply. All right, everyone, here we go. This is another great episode. My guest, For today is Jessica Grossman, and Jessica talks as a yoga teacher and registered dietitian and is a faculty member for the Yoga for Eating Disorders. It is a really interesting episode. I'm looking forward to it, so let's just jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really honored to introduce our guest for today, Jessica Grossman. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's an honor to be here. I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. We have a lot to talk about. You are a dietitian, you're a yoga instructor. There's so much to get into. Can you share with the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I am a registered dietitian. I'm a weight-inclusive and haze-aligned registered dietitian with over 20 years of a variety of experiences, both in client and patient care, and in other areas that dietitians find themselves in, including um, recipe development and nutrition education, culinary education, done work with nonprofits, and spent a lot of time in the kitchen, which is really my happy place when I'm not uh, working with clients or on my yoga mat. So uh, I do provide compassionate client care. I work as part of a private practice with a focus on disordered eating and eating disorders. In addition, I am a yoga teacher. I teach out of a studio in my home, as well as I'm on the faculty for Yoga for Eating Disorders, which is a wonderful, supportive online community for those Uh, in the midst of recovery or not even in recovery yet from eating disorders. And I guide classes 100% virtually to students all over the world. It sounds, it sounds phenomenal. 
Um, I'm, I'm so, I'm excited. I don't know if I want to talk about the nutrition aspect, the yoga aspect, both combined. So let's just start with, you know, share a little bit about the work that you do with clients from your nutrition, from your, from your registered dietitian perspective. Sure. So I really enjoy one-on-one client work. I am part of a group, a private practice, as I mentioned, that has a focus with uh, eating disorders. And my interest stems more to disordered eating, to before the diagnosis of a clinical eating disorder. I think that there is a whole, not that I think, I know there is the whole spectrum of disordered eating all the way through clinical eating disorders to be addressed. And I really find the most satisfaction in the work that I do with those who haven't received a clinical diagnosis at this point, because there's so much that can be uncovered and addressed in a variety of ways beforehand. And that's where my interest, my culinary interests can come into play and experiences that are not specifically about acute eating disorders. So I enjoy working with a variety of clients. Most tend to be, um, I would say, middle-aged women who are tired of going through the rat race of diets. They have seen what diets have done to themselves physically, emotionally, mentally, how they've oftentimes ruptured family relationships, friendships, and want to put an end to that cycle, whether only for themselves or for helping to repair their family structure as well. So those are the clients that I really am drawn to and feel that the work that I can do with them is most beneficial. You know, we don't often talk about disordered eating in the sense of what you do. And so this is amazing. This is trying to metaphorically wrap our arms around somebody before they go down the path of the eating disorder. And I would imagine it's a critical point. And the reason why I say that is, as listeners have heard me say in the past, I was very, very lucky that although I had an extreme eating disorder, it was caught within the first year. I had a much higher rate to a higher success rate. If we're going to use the word success, I forgive me, everyone, to recover because we caught it so early on. You're working with such an incredible population. This can actually prevent them from going down that road. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or if it's just where my brain went or. What I would add to that is that identifying disordered eating is so difficult because of what diet culture or wellness culture deems as disordered or regular normal eating behavior. And so you know, somebody that has taken out specific food groups from their diet 
and thinks that that is normal eating is in the dark about the true nature of disordered eating. And so that's the hard part. If a client isn't willing to acknowledge that what is normal for them is actually disordered, oftentimes comes from a therapist referring to me saying, I think this is not normal and needs to be addressed by a nutrition professional. And so that's the true difficulty of identifying disordered eating. And so how do you work with that client? Because I'm imagining, you know, when when clients come to me, there's been a different level of distress, whether it's physical or emotional. And so whether they want to admit it or not, they can see the impact that it has on their life, the, the eating disorder at this point. You're right. Disordered eating is almost normalized in our in our world. How do you work with somebody who comes in and says, you know, no, I'm not supposed to eat a lot of carbohydrates or fats or sugars or what? like, it is like, everybody knows this, like, because I get that often, like clients saying, well, I'm not supposed to. And I'm like, mm, let's actually break that down a little bit, that thought. So how do you, because sometimes it hasn't disrupted their life yet. I use a completely individualized approach because we are all different and everyone is different and everyone's response to what brings them to session with me is different. So I have gone through the training to become a certified intuitive eating counselor. I use the tools of the 10 principles of intuitive eating. I bring in Hayes and the five Hayes principles to my work and really just move slowly, really unpacking what it is that is perpetuating the lack of normalcy in eating. And also there's an educational piece to what is normal versus what isn't normal. And normal for one person is not normal for another. And so really, as I said, it's individualized, really individualized and compassionate care. And that's what I pride myself on is that really individualized, compassionate care that I bring to all of my client sessions. Do you recommend that all of your clients engage in a yoga practice because of how much you use yoga with healing and eating disorders or how does that work? So I bring yoga into every client session. I start every session with a grounding practice to center my client in their body, to center their breath, to just feel what it's like to slow down and be still. And that can be jarring. That can be uncomfortable. I get to see that. Um, I work 100% virtually. So I get to see the reactions of my clients, especially they're uncomfortable at the beginning when I say we're going to start with grounding. But over time, I've had clients that in the middle of session with me will say, can we ground again? I'm feeling a little off. I want to come back to center. Can you help me? Can we ground again? Can And I have this spiel. It's probably 90 seconds long, but most of my clients, I would say, look forward to those first 90 seconds of session because they know they're coming into this comfortable, safer place where they are going to be seen and heard by someone who cares. 
So yes, I bring yoga in to every session because yoga is beyond a physical practice. Yoga is an eight limb system. We can get into the technicalities, but the physical practice, the asana practice of yoga is just one of eight pieces of classical yoga. And the purpose of a physical yoga practice really is to rid the body of the energy so that one could sit, turn inward to meditate and come into a higher sense of self and being. So yes, I bring yoga into every session. I oftentimes recommend my clients to to find a physical and asana practice. It's not um, necessarily recommended for everyone or appropriate for everyone. People have resistance to that physical practice, oftentimes because of what societal norms about a physical practice is. I can tell you that there's so many different types of um, asana practices, but I think that the yoga piece, the, the piece of quieting the mind to the best of one's ability is essential, essential for work to be done. Can you actually name all the limbs of yoga? Because I think it would be wonderful because I do think that when we say yoga, everybody pictures downward dog, tree pose. Like You're putting me on the spot, Karen. I and, but it's okay. I probably can give you all them. So the first two are the yamas and the niyamas, which are philosophy-based um, limbs. Then we get to asanas, number three. And let me think what comes, I mean, this is going back to my you know, teacher education, but there's meditation, there's withdrawal of the senses, there is um, breath work, pranayama, there is... Uh, Basically, the only physical piece is limb number three, the asana piece, which is what is shown in westernized yoga as the only piece of yoga. But knowing that breath work, meditation, philosophical um, precepts are all parts of yoga. How did we get to the place, though, that we only see yoga through the physical movement, through asana. And I want to be very clear from, and I'm going to speak from my own perspective, Jessica. Like I feel with everything in life, there are things that can be used to help and there are things that we don't know can be used to hinder. And so there there are things in in yoga that are incredibly wonderful, grounding, helpful, and then there are other things that do feed, no pun intended, but a little bit into diet culture. And so can we sort of sift them apart? Um, and 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 I want to start with that. Like, how did we get to a place where it's no longer about the senses, about sitting, about meditation? So the current westernized view of yoga, of that physical practice came here I want to say about a hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago. Um, and it stuck a woman that was a, I believe a movie star was interested in Eastern philosophy, traveled to India, found a guru, decided it worked for her. She felt better in her mind and body, brought it back to the U S and it's, you know, began to, with a little flame, eventually spread like wildfire to the point where we're at. And I mean, before 
my time, but within the past many decades, yoga was, you know, a hippie thing. It was a crunchy on the commune activity. And we've certainly gone beyond that now because yoga now is beyond a physical practice, beyond a meditation practice, beyond a breath practice, and has become a lifestyle, a look, a way to eat, a way to believe. And it's been completely co-opted, whether fortunate or unfortunate, and one could argue in either direction by diet culture. Let's start with what the benefits are with yoga. I know that uh, for me, when I was in my eating disorder, and we already alluded to this, but like quieting my mind, dropping into my body, all these things, Jessica, terrified me. I was like, oh, God, no, 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 no. We are not going there. And by the way, I think it's one of the reasons why in my my exercise addiction, I was always in classes with really loud music and instructors yelling and do this and work harder because I couldn't be in quiet. I couldn't be in quiet mind. I couldn't. So, so what are the benefits of yoga when, when struggling with an eating disorder? So like you said, Karen, the benefits are the quieting the mind, the dropping into the body, the being physically on a yoga mat in a defined space, if that feels safe and comfortable for someone is really defining their place in the world in that present moment. And this would be a great place to pause and tell you that I define yoga is as the integration of body, mind, and breath in the present moment. It, it makes no reference to movement, to any specific shape that the body can be in. It's literally present moment, body, mind, and breath. And that can be as simple as sitting or laying down in a space. And so yoga gives us that time and place to bring those three things together, the body, mind, and the breath without movement, without another place that you need to be at that time, without anything else to think about. It gives a container of space for feeling sensation in the body. And for our eating disorder clients, that's a really tough thing. You're using either using food or not using food to remove that sense, the feeling from the body. And we're asking in yoga to feel sensation, to feel the breath travel through the body, to feel the touch of one's hand upon their skin, to feel the body in movement or in stillness. And those are scary, scary asks for someone who struggles with their body. Is there something particular that you do differently? And, and I don't even know if this is an appropriate question, but when somebody comes to you and they've had trauma, I think that we have, you know, one of the reasons why it is so difficult to be in one's body is if there has been trauma to the body. And so to say to somebody, sit quietly, feel your breath, feel your chest rise. And this is like the million dollar question, but how do we work or how do you work with, and, and I'm assuming it's individualistic again, like you, like all the other things. It is. There are techniques though to make yoga trauma sensitive trauma informed there's languaging that is 
appropriate, their um, cues and even the conduct of the teacher guiding a trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive practice. It's a very different from a studio yoga class. And unfortunately, we have people that come to, now that the pandemic's over and studio yoga studios are back open and people are going to group classes um, in the general public, we don't know who is going into those classes and who has been a victim of trauma in the past and what a teacher may say or motion or you know what kind of either verbal or nonverbal body language a teacher will use that can be um, activating, triggering to someone. So that's the tough part. Teaching in the way that I teach as a faculty member for yoga freeing disorders, as well as in my home studio, is a safer option because of the training that I have, because of the individualization I am able to bring to each session, each class. Even though I teach groups, I am aware of who is in the group and um, can really tailor my language, my bodily cues and nonverbal cues to make sure that it's safe as possible for those in my presence. And that's all we can do. We can't ensure that everyone is going to have a 100% safe experience, but we can only do our best to provide a, as safe as possible of an environment. How do we help clients that are stuck in some of the, I'm going to say trends of yoga? And by that, I mean, that could be the trend of being an, a, a runner. I mean, I, I want to be clear, this is not specific to yoga. This is basically anything that we have in our culture that can also have the elements of, as I said, the way people look, the the athleticism, things like that. How do we help clients that are struggling with eating disorders to sort of sift through that? I think the answer really lies in education and being able to look closely at the intention of an activity, the intention of intention of um, a, a lifestyle trend, a habit, and where does that fit in with recovery? Where does that fit in with a harmful behavior? If the intention is to practice yoga, but the practice is harmful, then that's not going to be supportive of recovery. If the intention is to practice yoga with the intention of aiding in recovery, of reconnecting with the body, the mind, and the breath, then we can say, yes, yoga is an appropriate um, appropriate mode to add to someone's recovery of and well-being. What are the benefits of yoga with somebody with an eating disorder? Does it help them to quiet their slow down their nervous system? Does it help them clear their mind? Like what is what is the goal? You were talking about if the goal is to so share a little bit about that. Yeah, the goal 
I believe is to bring the nervous system into a more balanced state to take it away from that sympathetic fight, flight, flee area and away from that dorsal, um, you know, really so slow and checked out place and really just a regulated parasympathetic state where you can experience some highs and lows, but the highs and lows are not going to take you away from your steady stream um, balanced or balanced to you life. And that's hard because we're all different. Once again, what activates or what freezes someone is completely different, but finding that safe zone, that place where the body, the mind, the breath can coexist um, without much thought, just in a place of freedom and comfort is really, I think, an ultimate goal of mine for my students, for my clients. Can you speak a little bit to, I'm going to call it a course that you are doing, which is befriending your body? Sure. So Befriending Your Body is, it's the title of a book by a psychologist and yoga therapist named Anne Safi Biasetti, who I have trained extensively with. And Anne researched bringing in the tools of self-compassion and somatic practices to recovery from eating disorders. And her research really showed that bringing in those tools about teaching self-compassion and having people who otherwise don't feel compassionate for themselves, which is oftentimes those struggling with eating disorders or even on the path to recover from eating disorders still don't have compassion for themselves. They can be the most compassionate friend, sister, mother, parent, partner, so on and so forth, but don't turn it back upon themselves. And so finding that the tools of self-compassion as well as the integration of self-compassion with the body, so the somatic practices, so of the body, um, were really helpful in healing and recovering from eating disorders and making that recovery long lasting. And so I trained extensively with Anne to be able to guide participants through her program through her book. It is an eight week or it's an eight chapter book and an eight week program. And it's probably one the fav, one of my favorite things. I can't name a favorite thing that I do, but I really love seeing the growth of participants as they go through the process of really learning how to find some self-compassion within themselves, of finding feeling within themselves. And this is not a um, yoga practice. This is has nothing to do with nutrition. This is pure psychoeducational material, but can only benefit um, every other modality in treatment. And so the people that come to this group and I guide it hundred percent virtually once again, um, they're not active in a eating disorder. They have either recovered or they're in more likely they're in that just 
long-term cycle of disordered eating and want to learn more about what it is that is keeping them stuck and how they can find freedom through learning the tools of self-compassion, learning about their body and what that um, happy place of their nervous system feels like to be able to make decisions, to be able to make informed choices, to be able to live a more mindful and free experience. And it's so gratifying to see those changes being made. You talk about uh, a new language that you try to incorporate to or, or to teach people speaking to themselves from the inside out. Share a little bit about that. Yeah. It's, I wish I had a really good example off the top of my head to share with you, but I don't, that's a hard one. Um, but we all, I think, I think this one thing that's taught a lot that I, that is, um, very apparent in the coursework is, um, this idea of common humanity that, everyone has a struggle and my struggle is different than someone else's struggle is different than someone else's struggle but that common humanity that piece that everyone has a struggle everybody has something that has been bothersome that maybe has been internalized within their body that has caused them to either numb or activate and and oftentimes that has been something that has influenced their relationship with food and um and so that that common humanity piece I don't know if I'm making sense to explain this but that common humanity recognizing that we all have struggles that we all have things that don't necessarily feel right but learning how to accept and move on how to name our discomfort learning how to not let discomfort um, take over the body and the mind, not to use food to numb the discomfort. That is that internal talking that, so really just naming, naming what it is that you're feeling, saying that is a part of me, but that is not my entirety um, is a really important piece. Did you gravitate to this work because of your own experience. I know that you yourself struggled with disordered eating. You you say that you've not had a, uh, an eating disorder, but by the way, disordered eating, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, can be just as uncomfortable to live in, both physically and spiritually. So is that is that what brought you to this work and how did you move through it? Disordered eating is something that I didn't have a name for, for a really long time. Um, I won't dive back as far as my childhood and adolescence, but I can tell you that studying nutrition, and I have a both an undergraduate and a graduate degree in nutrition, and studying that um, 25 years ago, as you can imagine, the current, the state of affairs back then and what the focus was on um, did not lead to uh, the most healthful behavior around food. And 
I'll be quite clear that nutrition education and the training of registered dietitians, especially 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, was definitely weight-centric, diet-focused. And you didn't see back then a diversity of body shapes and sizes of nutrition professionals. That would be an anomaly. So going through school, studying nutrition, becoming a registered dietitian, there was, I would say, an expectation to maintain a certain shape, a certain size, and more than that, to to be able to do that, to eat a certain way. We didn't necessarily have time to be at the gym. Um, could definitely be running around the hospitals during our clinical internships, but um, there was ex- something I definitely participated in more ex- monitoring of my food and the types of food that I ate. Um, the The caveat to that is is that I've always been very interested and involved um, in the culinary world, and so while I was studying while I was in school, I was also working at Williams-Sonoma alongside chefs, eating at some of the best restaurants in Boston and in New York, and um, really trying to figure out how to enjoy food and the entertainment of food, and also be learning how to uh, guide my patients in this very weight centric world that at that it, we still are in a weight centric world, but 20 years ago is even worse. So the cognitive dissonance that I experienced then was very powerful and it shifted and would say that I grew out of my disordered eating, the further I got from school and embracing motherhood, really noticing, first of all, the amazing um, miracle of becoming a mother, of bringing my daughter into the world, and now she's 16 and a half years old, but seeing intuitive eating as it is from birth and seeing and noticing and living with someone that knew no different, that did not know the effects of diet culture, that did not know um, disordered eating. And I wanted to make sure that I was going to be a good role model for my daughter. And I knew that being a good role model for my daughter meant that I needed to embrace intuitive eating and to um, leave my some of my maladaptive behaviors or all of my maladaptive behaviors behind. So I'm quite open in saying that I've not always had the quote unquote perfect history with food. Even movement, I would say I don't talk about exercise anymore. I talk about movement. I I really enjoy moving my body. I enjoy the emotional and mental benefits of it. Um, I used to be a distance runner and that was not healthy for my body, but getting outside most mornings of the year, even when it's cold, I won't walk in the rain, but I do walk for a good hour most mornings. And that's for this, the pure joy of being outside for feeling my body and its ability to move 
to getting fresh air, to clearing my mind and being away from my screen, away from um, as much as I love my family, from being away from my family and just the, the pure bliss that nature brings. It's about living life in balance. And even when life gets out of balance, knowing that there's no disordered eating or eating disorder that is going to bring it back in to balance. It's living through it until it, do you know what I'm saying? That's absolutely. Jessica, it has been such a pleasure having you on. I feel like I did this interview backwards. I usually start with, tell us a little bit about your history. So it feels a little funny that I'm saying it has been such a pleasure because I'm, I'm, expecting now for us to do the first half of the interview. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to share with listeners before we end? I want people to know, I want listeners to know that it is possible to to find a connection with food and body. And that connection may take time. It may take repeated exposure. It may take a variety of different clinicians and experiences to find, but every body, every person is capable, I believe, of finding connection and finding safety within themselves um, and finding comfort within themselves. And it's not a number on the scale. It's not a size of clothing. It's not a yoga pose. It is truly um, turning inward and being at peace with who you are. I agree. Thank you again for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.